Welcome to the Consortium Podcast, an academic audio blog sponsored by Kepler Education. Kepler is a consortium of independent classical Christian teachers unified by a shared vision for student flourishing. Welcome to the Consortium Podcast. I'm Scott Postma, your host, and I am joined today uh, by another special guest, uh, Dr. Mike Wilhelm of the Cal Farley's Boys Ranch. And um, Mike, so good to have you on the show today. Uh, how, how are things? Well, Scott, thanks for having me on your very fine podcast today. I'm honored and it's a good day at Boys Ranch. <laughs> That's great. Well, Mike, um, you know, we've gotten to know each other over the years um, at, uh, we shared some time together at um, uh, the doctoral program at Faulkner University, and we might talk some about that. But would you tell us a little bit about your own educational journey? How did you pursue education and, and what took you in this direction? Okay, okay, Scott, um, that's a, my education journey is uh, very fortunate to have survived a very shaky start. Um, I grew up in a little farm town in, in Northwest Illinois and uh, was a very, I went to a small public school and had 12 girls in my graduating class and eight boys. Um, the, uh, um, was a, it was a public school. I didn't grow up with uh, classical Christian education, unfortunately. But uh, one thing I benefited from, the little small farm town in the Midwest, it benefited from uh, what I guess you call residual Christian values. Mm. And, and the school experience for me was uh, K through eight. I did very well in school, and school came easy. And, uh, but in high school, I became... Uh, lost interest and really checked out. And by junior, senior year, um, you know, grades were very lackluster. By the time I'm in senior in high school, I'm, I'm completely checked out. Um, something fortunate happened to me on my senior year. And I, on a whim, I pulled a book from a bookshelf at home and it was one of my mom's old college books. And it was Homer's Odyssey. Mm. <clears throat> and I had no idea what it was, and I, I didn't even know how to pronounce it, um, but I started to read it and couldn't put it down, <laughs> and, and I carried it with me everywhere I went and, and uh, was, uh, couldn't, could not stop reading the, uh, Homer's Odyssey. And um, you know, while reading Homer's Odyssey during pre-calc class doesn't do much to help your pre-calc grade, <laughs> it, it, it did help save my mind. And when I finished reading Homer, I began pulling more books from that little area of the bookshelf at home and read uh, Sir Thomas Mallory's Le Mort d'Arthur, um, Hemingway's Farewell to Arms. I read some Shakespeare, uh, Midsummer's Night's Dream, and uh, some Tolstoy. Had an English teacher in school that, bless her heart, was still fighting the good fight. and She kept us exposed to great literature and I remember being impacted by Coleridge and Robert Burns, but all in all, I kind of limped out of high school with, uh, uh, you know, mediocre grades, uh, evidently had a high enough ACT to get accepted into a large state university, um, went to state university, had no idea why I was there, uh, shuffled from big room to big room and with poor study habits and, and it didn't take very many semesters till I spiraled out and became a college dropout. So, um, 
fast forward about 10 years and um, by God's grace, I had a very profound conversion to the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And uh, as I would best describe it, a, a season of robust metanoia. Um, so <laughs> part of that gift was I, I had uh, suddenly had the gift of uh, some self-discipline. And at that point, I really regretted that I left on the table a chance to get a college degree. So um, there was some time after that, I was, um, there's a, there's a, <laughs> just kind of a quirky little story about 10 miles West of the farm town that I'm from. There's an, a, an abandoned college campus, just beautiful brick buildings that are sadly in decay uh, nestled in around some uh, beautiful Oak trees that Shimer college. And on a whim, I was curious about that abandoned college. And I, I on my, 512k Macintosh computer, I, I, <laughs> I searched the World Wide Web and found that uh, Shimer College still existed. And uh, Shimer was at that time had moved into Chicago suburbs. Um, and it was very interesting. I didn't know such a thing existed. It was just a house. And uh, as I read through their web pages, uh, they, uh, their curriculum was a great books curriculum. I didn't hadn't even heard of the term great books at that point, but I was really attracted to what I was reading. And I knew it, it, it resonated with those books that so impacted me in my senior year of high school. Um, as, it, as it turns out, Scheimer probably was a very a much uh, akin to Gutenberg College, maybe a secular version of what Gutenberg's doing right now, as best I could tell. I, I couldn't go to Scheimer College. Uh, regretted that I wasn't able to get a college degree, but I thought well, there's nothing that's stopping me from getting an education. And Great. what they had posted on their website um, was their semester by semester book reading list. And it's very set, uh, similar to how St. John's has their set or um, probably Gutenberg, is, uh, I suppose. So I just started getting the books and reading the books. And that was a, a big season of growth for me. And, and uh, then some number of years later, distance education becomes a reality to get accredited degrees and whatnot. So I thankfully was able then to get a, a degree and a master's in biblical interpretation. And then ultimately was able to uh, do uh, Faulkner's uh, doctoral program in the, with their great books honors college. So that's my unusual um, education journey. I didn't, I didn't take the shortcut, I guess, took the scenic route. <laughs> well, I love it. I love that your scenic route uh, started with uh, the Odyssey. <laughs> uh, that <laughs> yeah, almost seems. <laughs> <that something? laughs> uh, yes, it did. Uh, that's fantastic. Well, this is, you know, what's so interesting to me uh, about that is uh, it seems to be a theme among many of the folks that are on our show that, um, you know, despite college, despite, you know, institutional uh, institution, you know, uh, education, uh, folks are getting an education, you know, by discovering great books or or get uh, connected to, you know, this great literature, um, which are, you know, filled with the best of what's been, you know, thought or written, you know, in the last 3,000 years. And so uh, no wonder, uh, you know, you've become the person you are, of course, animated by the gospel. That's a wonderful, wonderful story. Um, 
so you you mentioned here, and, and of course we both uh, attended, uh, and I think we had some classes together on a, on a few occasions. Um, but was it the Great Books um, Honors College that led you to Faulkner, or or how did you get connected with them? Yes, I don't. I I do not remember how I ever found the the program, uh, but having an interest in great books, I don't know if it was a web search. I'm not sure how I came across Faulkner, but um, but uh, when I read about the program, I was very struck by it and and was hopeful that I'd be able to you know to do the program and and fortunately I was. That's wonderful. That now one of the things that we you know have both uh, experienced and, and, and know so well is this thing called a dissertation. Um, <laughs> can you talk a little bit about your dissertation? What was the the nature of your research? Oh, what did you pursue? Yeah. Well, the for yeah for the, far as doing the program, I, I was very interested in doing the program for. Um, three reasons, two of them unselfish and one somewhat selfish. Uh, I didn't want to do the program to get a different job. I'm a senior chaplain at a you know, child care facility, and I had no intention of doing something different. I wanted to become a better chaplain and to sharpen my thinking, to enlarge my imagination, and to deepen my compassion. And I knew the great books were uh, certainly a, a, a way to, to do that. I want to one day write a book about uh, the soul care of, of hurt kids. Mm. And I thought this would be a, a, a good um, training ground for, for the thinking necessary to write a book of, of, of that quality. But the, then the selfish reason that the program was um, any of your listeners that have an affinity for great books know we have these bucket lists of things we want to read. And there's no better way to get through this bucket list than to have the anxiety of deadlines. <laughs> so, and uh, it certainly was that. So, as, as you know, Scott, some days you're feeling like you're dog paddling, trying to keep your nose above water. But um, I'm so grateful for uh, such a high quality program, very rigorous, very demanding, <clears throat> very challenging. Uh, but uh, just Dr. Jewell, Dr. Woods, the folks there are just a mar- do a marvelous job. And then I, you get to be in a culture of, of uh, scholars as yourself that love the Lord Jesus and have fine minds and, and uh, that really have helped me become a better person. So the, that's some of the background as far as doing the program. The dissertation um, is, uh, was done around the works of George MacDonald and Many of your listeners, that might be a familiar name. Uh, um, McDonald was very influential in the thought of of Lewis, of Tolkien, of Barfield, of Chesterton, uh, Russell Kirk. Um, and uh, the title of my dissertation, I did the work around a late life masterpiece of McDonald's titled Lilith. Mm. And uh, <clears throat> the, the title of the dissertation is Repentance for a Scientistic Age. The Imaginative Apologetics of George MacDonald's Lilith. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds like a a mouthful mouthful. maybe to some of our (laughs) listeners, but um, maybe unpack that a little bit for us because uh, this is fascinating. Um, It actually overlaps a little bit with some of the work that I'm doing, but 
of course, um, you know, Fantasties was very influential. I think uh, Lewis said in Surprised by Joy that that's how he baptized his, or his imagination was baptized by uh, by McDonald. But unpack a little bit um, of, of what that research looks like or, or what, what, what is the objective there? Well, I think it has a actually has a quite a connection with the work you're on about and the uh, your audience here with, at the Consortium podcast. Um, McDonald, I believe, first of all, if you, if someone wants to look at Lilith, it's not going to be everyone's cup of tea. Um, it's a, you know, 300 page novel, uh, in the fantasy genre for adults. And it is, uh, the secondary literature, um, is going to sometimes obscure what, what McDonald has done. So, um, but the, the book itself has a what Chesterton would call well, I would say it's a stereoscopic vision. Hmm. Uh, Chesterton would say you'd need to read it with. He doesn't say this of Lilith, but he says this out and and um, he says this somewhere that reading with the eye of a mystic, uh, with the relaxed eye. Hmm. And does that does that ring a bell with you, Scott? Yeah. These words that, that everlasting man, I believe, and. Uh, and Lilith has to be read that way. If if you're annoyed by those stereographs with all the little um, little shapes and colors that look meaningless, and you stare at them long enough, and something deeper opens up, if you're annoyed by that, you won't like Lilith because that's pretty much how you have to read it uh, to begin to see what McDonald's done. And you also, I think, it requires a great um, familiarity with British literature, mm-hmm. which sadly is be, is becoming uh, so neglected now that I don't know that modern readers are able to see what McDonald has done. But what he has done that's of interest to your listeners is he makes a great case for the great books. The vision begins and ends in a library, yeah. and, uh, and then it's animated by just this great import of great literature and you see the transformation of the protagonist through his encounters with Shakespeare and Coleridge and Wordsworth and Dante and comes out the other side, a, a new person ready to, to live life as a more, as a, as a full human being. So um, I would say one thing McDonald does, Scott, is I think he gives a warning for the temptation to privilege STEM subjects mm. to the, over great literature. Um, McDonald uh, was very fond of the hard sciences. Uh, so it, it wasn't that he was like it, it, choosing this over that. It was that these belong together and you cannot start to separate, um, blow the curriculum apart into all these uh, 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 silos of specialty. Um, they they must stay together, or there'll be moral consequences. Yeah. Um, I think you could read it alongside of some things that Burke has said, uh, Eliot, and Kirk, as far as um, with the idyllic imagination, the diabolical imagination, the moral imagination. So um, definitely for those who have an affinity for great books and want to try something different, you might want to check it out. But it's not going to be everybody's cup of tea. 
Well, what's what's really interesting about what you pointed out is that McDonald's writing at a time right in the the 19th century, late 19th, early 20th century, when you know the the rise of the specialization is becoming so um, you know it, it they're leaning into it, they they see it coming, um, but then they you know then they start trying to you know educators and and thinkers are, are trying to foster the specialization, and um, and it seems like he's sort of pushing back against this. And one of the great things about fantasy of of this period, this is this gives way to things like Tolkien's uh, Lord of the Rings um, versus what a lot of people today think of as fantasy is like uh, game of thrones or something like that where this is you know a complete different vision um of what um you know what the human being should be you know and and, and so i think this is a a wonderful um yeah i'd love to see a recovery of mcdonald in in our modern age he's uh, he seems like there's there's a renewed interest um and there's been some good work on mcdonald but uh, there's a it certainly gets sometimes his work gets obscured with some modern uh, modern literary criticism being mm. thrust upon McDonald that McDonald wouldn't ever have really much probably cared about. But uh, you mentioned that word, yeah, the the temptation there in the Victorian period towards specialty. Um, I think it's young. Someone wrote a a, a nice. Uh, historical piece on the period. And I think he refers to it, the education um, trend as leading to a wasteland of specialists. Mm. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So uh, yeah, definitely. McDonald had, McDonald was seemed to be, he died in, I believe 1905. And uh, I think there that late Victorian period, he definitely saw the storm clouds of what was coming and, and McDonald and some of the, I mean, Lewis and some of the others have wrote very well about then what, what happened since. Well, it's a, it's a, there's a beautiful story, as I mentioned, um, you know, in, in surprised by joy where Lewis, you know, is, uh, you know, at a place in his own education and life where, you know, he's, he's become, you know, he calls it an exile into a desert land. Uh, but it's uh, picks up at a train station, picks up a copy of Fantasy's never heard of it and is, you know, he, he gets that experience that he's been looking for this thing called joy, this longing and desire. And, and so it kind of recovers and it's, it's quite fascinating, but it, it shapes the rest of the way uh, that Lewis writes. And of course the inklings that a lot of folks are, are interested in um, in talking and thinking about, well, Mike, you, you know, it's, it's interesting to think about the kind of work that you're doing. And, and as you mentioned, you're the senior chaplain at Cal Farley's Boys Ranch, but it's not entirely a boys ranch. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how your education is uh, informing the work that you're doing there? Yeah, Cal Farley's Boys Ranch, it's a, a misleading title. We are <clears throat> boys and girls here. Um, and I would describe us as a I've said this before as a unicorn. Um, it's a place where childcare informed by cutting edge science is practiced in a Christ centered atmosphere of old fashioned community. So uh, our campus, if you were to see it, it's very beautiful and nostalgic and looks like Mayberry RFD <laughs> and everybody waves and knows each other by name and have all these quirky characters out here. And yet, uh, the child care on the ground is informed by the best of, of, of science as, as, with, as far as child care goes. 
but the, the heartbeat of our community is the eternal gospel of Jesus Christ here with folks that, that, uh, that, that pray and serve together in the Lord's name. So um, we take care of kids ages 6 to 18 uh, from all over the United States, and that's what we do. When we're at capacity, we're about 250 kids right now recovering from the COVID recession, if you will. We, we're, we're, our number is about half of that, so mm-hmm. we just have about 125. Wow, that, that's exciting work that you're doing, important work, uh, especially in our world um, where you know, some of the things we've talked about, maybe some of the connections, you know, we, we look at, you know, what sometimes people call the decline of the Western tradition and, and those kinds of things. But, you know, really the uh, disintegration of the nuclear family um, and um, all of the, you know, uh, fallout from that, you know, happen to be that this is what the children are, are suffering from. So we really appreciate the work that you're doing there, especially that it's rooted in Christ. Now, there's another uh, program, Mike, that uh, you guys have going there called the Iona Project. Would you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, okay, our Iona Project, I'm, I serve here as the senior chaplain at, at Cal Farley's, and, and obviously the kids here on our campus are not here because the world's a perfect place. Um, we're uh, Just to be clear, our residential child care setting, we're not a juvenile detention center. Uh, we're residential childcare for boys and girls, and they're being placed here mostly by families. We'll have some child protective services placements as well. Uh, but uh, the kids are here. Um, the kids have suffered, uh, in most cases, an abnormal degree of life losses. And uh, um, and even just to be just to help your listeners understand a little bit of what what we're what this place holds, we have kids that. Um, are from families that maybe grandparents were trying to take care of the children because the the parents are have been uh, unavailable for some reason, uh, maybe because of uh, incarceration or addiction or just some bad life choices. We have other kids that are placed here because um, blended families didn't blend. And uh, maybe a child from a previous relationship is scapegoated in an unhealthy way and mm-hmm. acting out. <clears throat> Those are sad stories. We have some, uh, a number of kids here that have loving parents at home doing the, doing the best they can. And they're in an under-resourced neighborhood. And for whatever reason, their community doesn't, their home and community doesn't have the resources that their particular child needs to be able to flourish. Uh, sometimes it might even be something as simple as safety. Maybe a child's in a dangerous neighborhood that's that's suffering, the suffering community. Um, one in three kids on our campus are uh, adopted children, uh, di- children of disrupted adoptions, and that's been, that's that. There's been a huge uptick uptick in those placements. One in three currently would be an adopted child. Many of these kids are born overseas. So we have kids on our campus from all over the world. Um, so it's a, the setting is very, very challenging. Very, you, as you could imagine, direct caregivers on our campus are definitely folks in need of prayer because they are um, working around a lot of hurt and heartache. Uh, thankfully, we've been able to have um, a program 
here through our chapel. Then we're in our ninth year right now, as you mentioned, the Iona Project. This Iona Project is, and, and I'm going to give you too many hyphens for one sentence here, but <laughs> this, this, um, so I hope you can, I'm going to ask for forgiveness in advance. We're a quasi neo-monastic gap year program for young single adults. Okay. And when I say gap year, this would be post-college gap year. Uh, they have to be 21. Three girls and three guys will commit to a full year of employment serving as chapel interns on our campus. And what they do, Scott, they form together as a micro-community, much in the pattern of uh, some influence from, from Benedict, some influence from Iona, uh, from Columba of Iona, uh, the work there. And, and many of your listeners may be familiar with Bonhoeffer's little gem, Life Together. Yeah. Uh, and that book's very um, formative here with with what this Iona Project, uh, how it happens on, on campus. So here's what the Iona Project group will do. All right, these young adults come here. They agree for, to a full year of employment here with us, serving through the chapel. Their lives are ordered around a schedule of fixed hour prayer, um, life in, in the scriptures where they'll be practicing uh, week in and week out, Lexio Divina and Lexio Continua, mm-hmm. and uh, meaning they're going to be meditating deeply on, uh, on with some repetition around small portions of Scripture together, and then they'll also be engaged in a nine-month cover-to-cover read of the Bible together. The group will uh, do a close reading of Bonhoeffer's life together. And then we'll do other various readings during our spiritual formation time. Sometimes we might pull a selection from Tolstoy or Lewis or McDonald or Augustine or Dostoevsky. Um, the group will receive a, a full plate of, of a cutting-edge child care training, and then they're going to be doing supervised youth ministry on our campus. And the group is there. It's a great time, a great season for soul growth for these fine young adults in the program. But, but as you can imagine, they bring such a blessing to our campus uh, more than I could ever really, really say. So that's in a nutshell, that's what the program looks like. Mike, this is really fascinating. And and I want to ask you a couple of questions about it. Um, And, you know, in the first place, so when when you talk about youth ministry, this is supervised youth ministry, um, what I get a sense from when you're talking about this is, you know, um, neo-monastic or or quasi-neo-monastic, that this isn't youth ministry where, you know, it's all – you know, I don't know, uh, swallowing goldfish kind of things. It sounds to me like this is ministry to these young people that you're working with um, from the rich, deep tradition of the church fathers of of a, um, um, you know, uh, uh, rooted in, in, in scripture and in classic, uh, the old things, I guess, as Lewis might call them. Um, is, is that an accurate assessment or can you qualify what that looks like? Yes, that would be, yeah, that'd be an accurate assessment Um, that our recruits tend to come out of, um, we're we're right here in the Bible Belt. We do have recruits from really from all over the world, actually, but they tend to be evangelical kids coming in here that um, will tend to have been brought up in a, oh, I, I guess, 
I'm not sure you may, you, you probably have a right word for this, but um, the non-denominational evangelical um, church culture mm-hmm. with, with those um, set of assumptions and things like that, and wonderful kids that love the Lord, they have not been uh, where probably Christian spiritual formation is seemed to be more linear rather than um oh just the the repetition of of uh soaking in the word from the uh, monastic model is going to be more going to be new to them liturgy will be new to them for the most part silence will be a a, a new element as well for most of our uh, young friends that come and join the program so um, they, th- there's a wonderful time of adjustment. I've been so blessed. We, they, they come from a number of different backgrounds, but their openness to, uh, uh, to be open to what the program looks like and how it really is probably going to be so- a somewhat different approach to, um, spiritual formation and what they've been used to for sure. I, I don't know if that's if that's touched on kind of what you're getting at or not, Scott. That does that that touches on it a lot. I I just find that in in the modern idea of you know I'm going to call it youth ministry, um, but in the modern idea of the modern evangelical mind, it's usually just entertaining kids, um, you know, for sure. a period of time. And and I, I I speak from experience. My one of my very first roles, uh, other than um, I was a school principal and a, a youth pastor, which basically meant we did a lot of you know, games on a Wednesday night or stuff, you know, but we, we tried to do some other things uh, that was different, um, you know, and that was early on in, in my Christian, you know, growth experience. And, and I saw a difference between the fruit of what that was um, versus you know, young people who were, you know, enriched. Uh, and, and I love the word you use, spiritual formation, or the phrase you use, spiritual formation, but but really focused on that through the reading of Scripture. And a lot of evangelicals don't know. They, they don't read um, any of the patristics. They don't read any of the, you know, the great books. And, you know, the, probably the closest thing they might get to is, you know, some sort of, you know, modern uh, you know, uh, self-help, you know, in the tradition of John Maxwell or something. And I'm sure there's some great things they can glean from that, but it's not the rich thing that you're talking about. No. Yeah. We've, uh, you made me reminded me, we did a, we did a reading of Athanasius reading into Christmas a couple years ago with the group. And yeah, most of our young friends that come into the program, uh, have not, they sadly, uh, they, I'm grateful that they've been, they're very open and very, uh, their minds are awakened to great literature. But the sad thing is, I think that our evangelical Protestantism has tended to be, there's, we're still suffering from some, some intellectualism and uh, uh, discounting the value of uh, patristic fathers and, and those writings and different things. So it's, it's nice for to see these young minds engaged in that. And then as far as what you were talking about, what youth ministry looks like, um, the, uh, the, the crazy games and uh, that sort of thing, we do that. Okay. There's that, that, that's part of uh, life out here, but the model that would, um, that would suggest that you do a bait and switch, you know, you try to entertain, you draw them to a setting through entertainment or stimulation of some kind 
to get them to do something or accept something or um, a sinner's prayer or whatever that um, that that approach is not what's in play here. Um, and there's a book written by Andy Root about revisiting relational youth ministry. And I don't know if you had read that before Scott or not. Is no, that, but it sounds about? interesting. No. Yeah. It sounds yeah, very he, interesting. He draws heavily on Bonhoeffer and just in a nutshell, it speaks to what, what you've, the, what you brought up this whole idea of we're going to somehow uh, attract the kids in and woo them into a relationship so that we can bring them into this third thing, basically a, an agenda hidden or not hidden. Mm-hmm. Um, he would, he would criticize that as being dehumanizing and basically the kid becomes an object and really uh, Jesus Christ becomes an indirect object in that scheme. He would say yeah. um, that, that we we experience the living Lord Jesus Christ within the relationship. So we have a strong emphasis here of of not having those agendas, however good they might seem or might be, uh, but that we're going to double down in scripture and prayer on behalf of the kids and then live our lives authentically uh, engaged with them in real relationship. And so that's that's basically how the program works out here. I love it. I, I, I love that you talked about the bait and switch. And I think that was the, the point that I, I was getting at is that sort of manufactured tactic, you know, to, to try to, you know, get some influence versus, you know, I think Christians should have fun and play fun games and and those kinds of things. Right. Uh, but not as a tactic to, you know, to get to hear them or hear them to pray a prayer or something. But now there's a, this has come up now a couple of times. I meant to ask you about this a minute ago, and then we talked about some other things. There's so many great things that we can uh, pursue. Um, and I'm wondering, and, and I don't hope I don't put you on the spot, you know, too harshly here, but I'm wondering if you talk a little bit about this idea of Christians. You know, we, we've talked a lot about great books. We're classical Christian educators in this, in a sense of, of liberal um, learning. Um, and, you know, and we can talk about all of what that means, but why not just the Bible? Why uh, the Church Fathers? Why um, great literature, Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, um, other, you know, uh, MacDonald? Why the great books along with Scripture? You know, oh boy, you have put me on the spot. That, 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 but you've asked a, an important question that, we, that needs to be asked. Um, I, I, I don't know that I'm the. Um, the, the expert enough to weigh in on this, but what one thing that I think it does is however much our hermeneutic might um, suffer from uh, just being just very limited because of context. And then Augustine, anyone would say it's always going to, you know, we can't ever escape ourselves and get out of our way and we really have to trust be humble and hum- humility be the thing that he prescribed. But however limiting our, our, our hermeneutic is, our, our way that we interpret scripture due to, you know, our humanity and our, our context, <clears throat> it's, uh, there's not a better way to open that up than uh, to step aside and read some what are non-sacred texts, but that help us think imaginatively and 
uh, use it, you know, the tired cliche, but, you know, to really to start to think outside our boxes. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then suddenly, as you come back to scripture, um, when you're reading the prophets or you're reading uh, wisdom literature, you're reading a letter from Paul, you're starting to be more aware of the different genres of literature. I just think it makes us better Bible readers. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it, it is a difficult question um, for some, you know, to tackle. And for some people, it seems like a big obstacle when you think about, well, we have the Bible, just read the Bible. But one of the things that I have found and experienced, and maybe you've experienced this as well, is that a lot of times um, our modern evangelical Bible readers, people who would affirm Scripture, you know, um, uh, as, as a final authority, will read it um, uh, in what we might call a nudescriptura fashion, right? Sort of stripped of any context of its of its culture, of, of, of its genres of literature, and sort of impose our own modern presuppositions on, you know, eisegetically onto the text, which then ends up giving us this sort of um, handbook for, uh, you know, uh, prescriptive living in, in a sense, you know, and, and rather, and, and that gets into legalism and then people push back and it becomes licentious and we miss, it seems like we fall into one ditch or another, but by reading this great literature and looking at the context and the culture and the things that they dealt with, as Lewis said about reading old books, it, it gives us a different perspective on what they were dealing with and how they thought about some of the same issues we're thinking about. They're perennial. Um, and it opens, like you said, it opens us out, outside the box, uh, you know, to use that term, but it, it opens it up and gives us some context to read um, and, with, and, and draw from it versus, you know, impose upon it. That, that's at least in my experience. Oh, that's well said. Ab- absolutely. Yeah. And for all those reasons, I'm, I'm really so glad for the, the good work you're doing with Kepler and keeping uh, uh, folks engaged with, with great literature. So thanks for that. Well, Mike, if, if someone was interested, if we had young people interested in the Iona project, how would they go about applying or looking into it further? Where would they go to get that information? Yeah, well, there's a, on our Cal Farley um, employment page, there's, there's information there about the Iona project. And probably on your show notes, we can even post a link Perfect. to that. Yep, and we I probably can include my email address as well. Folks could contact me directly. That's wonderful. I, I hope some young people will take advantage of that opportunity. Oh, um, and we're right now is the time. The, the program year starts June 1st, and we are right now starting our, our you know recruiting campaign to get those six spots filled for next year. So it's the time is now, and I appreciate your help with this, Scott. Hey, listeners, hear that. <laughs> this is this is the opportunity right now. Um, well, as we as we slowly wind down, Mike, um, you are probably in one of the best positions to talk about this, um, given that you're you know being the senior chaplain uh, chaplain working at a uh, a state of the art childcare facility. Um, can you talk a little bit about the state of American families? And um, you, you've mentioned already, you know, a little bit about this, um, but. You know, in terms of, you know, say the American family, the church, uh, education, what do you see are trends going on here? And what would you say would be um, solutions or answers? How would how should we approach this as Christians? Sure. Um, well, uh, first of all, is as, as a, 
a believer in the the gospel, I'm I'm an optimist and know that God's story doesn't just have a good ending; it has a perfect ending. Mm. But but to answer your question, what are things like now on the ground here with for American families? And it's not good. I mean, it's uh, under great duress. There was a um, the speed of modernity has strained our relationships and stressed people to where um, uh, kids are not growing up in homes with dads. Um, and that has severe consequences, but um, kids are not growing up with adequate amount of um, eye contact and healthy touch, just even at an early, early age level. Uh, families are blown apart and uh, communities are under resource. Kids are more isolated now than ever and shuffled into big classrooms with uh, teachers that bless their hearts. They're probably overstressed and overburdened. Uh, so altogether, um, we're not we're not doing so well right now. And I would say a trend that I noticed from a, a chaplain perspective, a soul care perspective, is um the very this base of what Lewis would call the numinous. Does that mm. ring a bell with you? Yeah. Uh, the, yep. Uses that word. Um he, he uses that word of this 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 pervasive sense of of the supernatural or the possibility of it. And I don't think he necessarily throws it out there as a, therefore this proves God exists. Um you know you could reduce it pretty easily. But that is an important part of our humanity that I believe always existed probably until these modern times. And I think that's atrophied right now. And it's making it we're um, because of technologies, because of fam- families being blown apart. Um, we're being smothered by um, our personal electronic devices where we're losing eye contact and touch. Altogether, I think that vibe of, hey, there's something that's of awe, A-W-E, and uh, that seems to be around. I think that is being lost in such a way that kids are becoming tone deaf to God. And I think this is a underreported crisis, and I think we'll be seeing more and more of it. So much as kids are growing up with less siblings. Um, probably just one parent at home, and that parent is probably not available the way maybe they need to be. And then that child is very dialed into video games mm-hmm. um, and isolated. I, I, I think we're going to have human beings that are going to have a less and less capacity for empathy and, uh, and just uh, are going to become more and more tone deaf to God. So that, I'm sorry, that's a lot of doom and gloom, but I really think that's, uh, that's in play right now. Well, I, yeah, I think, I think you, uh, there's a couple things I just want to comment on. So you talked about the numinous, I think it's Alison Milbank, uh, that wrote God and the Gothic. And if, if there's several works that have talked about this, but some of the, um, uh, the 20th century, uh, sort of Gothic revival or, or even grotesque, and that's where I'm working on mine has to do with the fact of the numinous, the, the idea that, um, trying to make sense of a world that has been so reduced to materialism, 
um, that there's something missing. Like there's a sense in which something is missing, right. And, and trying to see where those two worlds connect. Um, so that's, that's one thing I wanted to mention. But the second thing is that, um, you know, you talked about, it, it does seem like a lot of doom and gloom. However, as you mentioned earlier, the gospel is great. It's a deep comedy, right? That, that, um, you know, the Lord Jesus Christ is, is restoring, um, that which has fallen and in is redeeming and so we're we're grateful um that we have a, a hopeful outcome in the midst of this and finding ways to engage you know the gospel in in not bait and switch ways but in in real wholesome life together spiritual forming uh ways you know the center of that being you know the right worship so well mike um I've loved our conversation. I wish we could uh spend some time in hanging out together and and uh talk more um would you maybe leave our listeners with um, a book recommendation? What would you, uh, you know, if you could pull a book off your shelf, what would you tell folks to read? Okay, Scott, this, uh, if they haven't read um, Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky, I, that, that's something you got to read in your lifetime and find a, it's a, it's an ambitious endeavor, um, but find you a, a reading group and some times to get together and chat about it. But I, I, I would highly recommend that if uh, for a, a more manageable read, if you wanted to try something different and unusual suggestion that, you, that no one would have expected today, I would recommend The History of Photogen and Nycteris by George MacDonald. Oh. Okay. That, Okay, the history of Photogen and Nycteris by George MacDonald. Um, that is a uh, um, somewhat of a uh, it's a fairy tale for adults. It'll only take an hour and a half to read it, and I believe there's quite a um, there's uh, yeah there's some beautiful imagery and there's a I think an important message uh, contained therein regarding our whole discussion today and the value of great literature and how that and science need to be partners together as we consider education. Um, you want me to read the beginning of the book, Scott? That would be wonderful. There was once a witch who desired to know everything, but the wiser a witch is, the harder she knocks her head against the wall when she comes to it. Her name was Watho, and she had a wolf in her mind. She cared for nothing in itself, only for knowing it. She was not naturally cruel, but the wolf had made her cruel. <laughs> uh, that is going to have to get that and read it. Scott. I'm going to have to. That's, that is intriguing. You, you've left us uh, wanting more. <laughs> uh, well, Mike, this has been, uh, a, again, a delightful conversation. And thank you so much for taking time out of your day uh, to talk with our listeners and share your insights and wisdom. Thank you for the good work that you're doing, and uh, Lord bless you in all of that. Oh, thanks for having me on, Scott. Thank you. God bless you for the fine work you're doing with Kepler. All right. God bless you, friend. Amen. Well, so long, folks. Thanks for listening. <laughs>